Hey there, how are you? This is Arthur Ettinger, and I'm welcoming you back to Close to the Vest. I am just a matrimonial lawyer, and we're here to talk anything and everything related to relationships and divorce. I have the honor to have today in the studio rock star Lauren Zambelli. Lauren, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. We are talking about uh, the pitfalls of divorce and your mortgage. And Lauren is a rock star loan officer and mortgage banker at Cliffco. Yes. So Lauren, <clears throat> as as many matrimonial lawyers know, um, and those going through a divorce, uh, you often have a home. And when there's a home, there's only so much you can do with that home in the event of a divorce. Correct. And that's why you're here, so you can educate those people who maybe are in the process or are thinking about going through the process, um, what they can uh, and should be doing in anticipation of the disposition of the home. And as I tell clients all the time, uh, there's only so many options. You can sell the house or you someone, there's a buyout. Yes, exactly. And the buyout is either now, you know, incident to the divorce or in some time down the road. For example, if uh, they have children and the youngest goes off to college, then there can be a buyout or a sale then. So for purposes, uh, excuse me, for purposes of this conversation, let's talk about uh, a buyout. Because if there's a sale, then this podcast is going to be five minutes long. <laughs> no, of course. So what can you tell the listener who has a house and is contemplating divorce or is going through it, um, what they can and should be doing? Um, I often find that it's a fire drill right around the time when people are negotiating the issue. Um, and I tell people all the time they should be thinking about this during the initial consultation. That's probably like my number one advice would be don't wait until last minute to contact your mortgage banker because depending on the situation, um, there are certain things that even the mortgage banker needs to have done three months before you even buy someone out. So coming to me in the final hour and being like, hey, I need this done in 30 days, especially in a market like we're in now, is 1,000% not possible. Um, so I guess like my biggest advice that I could give to anybody is start speaking to a financial advisor and your mortgage loan originator before you need this done. So you said it takes three months. Why does it take three months? Well, that depends. Um, so sometimes depending on who's been on the deed the entire time, um, you can't just refi the house into someone's name who's never been on the deed before without seasoning the deed. Um, so something like that would require time before you could buy that person out in a refi. And I know like right now mortgage rates are super low and yes. it's you're busy as hell, which is great for you. Um, I have seen a trend for many years now, which it's really hard to remove, let's say one spouse from the mortgage. Are you seeing, is it still that way? So I would say it's 50, 50, but there's reasons why it's that way. Right? So in most cases, if a woman is a stay-at-home mom and she wants to stay in the home with her kids, but the husband's vacating the property and she has to buy out the property from her husband, but she has no work history. She's never worked after having children. 
And now, even if she goes to get a job, it's a really difficult argument to make um, in regards to affording the property. So that's tough. Um, so that lends to the idea that that's harder. Um, and then I get the, the other main issue is just is just making sure that you you qualify. There's enough equity in the property for it to make sense. Um, just different things like that. But unfortunately, things are taking longer now. So there's a concept that. A lot of people listening, especially maybe um, one of the spouses that doesn't work um, and is not really familiar with uh, the family's finances, uh, debt to income ratio that I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. So can you just elaborate uh, to the audience what that means and what it means really to you uh, in the concept of refi and so forth? Yes, of course. So uh, debt to income ratio is... I guess for the most basic terms is a percentage of the debt that you carry every month in terms of monthly minimum credit card payments or anything reported on your credit report and the housing expense versus the income that you're making monthly. Um, but, you know, a lot ties into that, too, because sometimes I'll see in divorces, maybe the woman had a part time job right before and now she goes to get a full time job and she'll go work a second job. But I can't accept that second job because there's no two-year history of the second job. So there's not quick, you know, there's not quick things that you could do quickly to bring up your income drastically. Um, and that's the biggest problem I see in most cases. Sure. Or people holding just a ton of debt um, and making it harder to qualify for the home. So debt to income is really important. And especially now, um, after COVID, the debt to income ratios have gotten much more conservative. So maybe I would have been able to do you know, a 50 back end, which is a back end ratio, maybe 50% of your income could have been used for debt for COVID. And now that's not happening. And see, you've mentioned credit. How did, how much does that come into play? And because people go through a divorce, now they're not in control or they're covering two homes on one income and people's credit gets impacted. Um, how does that play in the application process? And what is it, if anything, that they can do to improve their credit to, I guess, get approved? Unfortunately, it plays a huge role, right? So not only does it play a role in if you get qualified in general, but then it also plays a role in your pricing and your rate and your, the product that you receive, your mortgage insurance premiums. Um, that's all credit driven. So what I see in most cases in divorce, which is really a shame, is that someone's credit, if not both people's credit, takes a huge hit for certain things, especially if um, spouses are arguing no, <laughs> and things don't get paid. Um, and then they'll say to me, well, he said he was going to pay that and he just didn't. The bank doesn't care who said they were going to pay it. You both signed for it. You were both equally responsible for it. I can't just give them a letter that says, hey, my husband said he was going to pay this and didn't. You know, so it's really important to know, like, even if you have outside arrangements, outside the credit report, if you both sign for something and that payment isn't getting paid, that's going to negatively affect you tremendously. I mean, there's no, there's going to be no way to explain that. And how long, assuming that they can improve their credit. Yes. How long will it take? until or how long will it take for you to see on the lending side, the improvement to let's say someone gets rejected and then time over time, they improve their credit. How long will it take for them to improve, to get um, approved? And I know it's a 
case by case basis. Yeah, but. I mean, it varies drastically, but I guess like the rule of thumb I would give it is if it's small things, I could do it rather quickly. I mean, there's programs that we pay for and credit rescore systems that we utilize at the bank to rescore credit in as little as 10 days. I mean, so it's possible. I've, I've done amazing things in 10 days. But the problem is those things usually are associated with high balances. You know, maybe you have a high balance that's pulling down your credit score, paying down the balance to a 30% utilization and getting your credit score up quickly that way or paying off, a, you know, getting like a collection off or something like that. Right. Those things I could do rather quickly. The things I can't do quickly, late payments, those are huge problems. And they drop your credit score. I was just talking to a credit expert that we use um, all the time. She was saying like 100 points for one late. So wow. so that's a big, those are things I can't fix right away. Right. So I guess the best advice I could give to somebody is just make your minimum payments no matter what's happening. Because even if you have high balances, eventually we could address those and those would be quick solutions. Um, but it, once you start missing payments and missing several back to back, it's going to be very tough to sure. fix that. You're looking at like months of credit rescores. Um, and can you speak to, um, so income obviously plays a part in whether uh, you'll approve someone. Yes. Um, do you also factor in the uh, settlement, the divorce settlement, whether it's like support payments and so forth? So. Unfortunately, there's stipulations to all of that stuff. Um, like we'll do alimony as an example. I can't count alimony unless the, the wife or the husband, whoever's receiving it, has been already getting it for a few months. Um, depending on what program, it depends how many months. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's not like I could have a divorce decree that says, oh, this person's going to receive $1,200 a month. And I'm using that right off the bat. That doesn't happen like that. Um, same thing with like child support, things like that. Um, if it's not going to continue for at least three more years, I can't use any of it. Um, so there's little caveats to each thing. I mean, there are ways to use it, but it has to be done the right way. Sure. Um, I often have seen, um, you know, there are tax implications on the disposition of a home. And if there's a buyout, then one person's assuming, um, all the tax implications on, uh, prospective sales. Um, and does that come into, does that weigh in the decision? Have you seen that with respect to individuals making a decision on whether or not they're going to refi? A hundred percent. In most cases too, the person who's getting bought out is worried about um, all that taxable income. So that's something that like comes up often. Um, that isn't my area of expertise. So I always give them right over to an accountant to go right. over that. But um, in a lot of cases, they'll have side agreements too of like, instead of doing 50-50, the person who's like taking on the taxable income will get a little bit more to cover the tax. Like there's, I mean, there's different things that they do. Yeah. And we also see like if, if I'm representing someone who wants to do a buyout and then in two years from now they want to sell, then I'm saying to them, do you really want to go through this whole exercise, pay for closing costs to refi, only to sell it later on when the other person is walking away from all those capital gains. That's a really good point, especially because closing costs, especially in New York state are so expensive. Um, I mean, they're roughly 5% of the purchase price in all of New York. So you're not, I mean, if you're looking to sell the house in two years, that's good advice that you give them because that's, a, you know, a lot of money to pay. And there's also 
now you're going to have to pay a broker's fee. Yes. When there's a buyout, there's no broker's fee. Correct. Um, can we also talk about, like, there's a home equity line or the refi will pay, you know, people will often use the refi or whatever, the home equity line to pay the spouse, mm -hmm. the distributive award, uh, i.e. their share of the marital residence. Correct. So HELOCs have their, their use in their place for sure. Depending on the situation, sometimes a HELOC is better than a refinance, but sometimes actually it, gets, it could get people in trouble too. Um, most HELOCs that are taken out are interest only for the first 10 years and then they amortize after. Um, so what I find is if someone's not making a great income and is barely keeping that house in the first place, they take out this huge HELOC to pay off, you know, to buy out their spouse. And then they're only making interest payments for 10 years. And then the rest of it gets amortized. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I can't afford this house anymore. And they're stuck refinancing or getting out of it anyway. Um, so HELOCs, I always try to be super cautious about, especially if someone's going from, you know, being in a household where two people are doing everything together and then you're, they're on their own. I just, I always like to make sure people really understand, like, you could pay interest for these 10 years, but, like, you're going to have a nice little payment at the end of it to pay. And do you have any advice for, for those people about to embark uh, on the process um, other than, you know, think long and hard about this decision that's probably going to impact at least the 15 or 30 life. years <laughs> yeah. ahead? So my advice is always the first, the first place I want to start is how long are you going to stay in this house? Because if you're only planning on staying in the house for five or six years, a HELOC's perfect. Um, you're going to sell the house and pay off the HELOC. You're going to pay up your first mortgage and you'll be done and you can move out. And that would probably be the best, you know, style of living that you can have in the, the lowest fees monthly. Um, now, if someone tells me, no, this is the house I want to live in for the rest of my life, then right off the bat, I'm telling them to go look at a 30-year mortgage and refi that because I would love to see someone in an amortized payment that is fixed and very predictable and comfortable instead of, you know, having, it's not a, it's not a balloon because it's not all do at once, but I mean, it's a big chunk of change due at the end of a HELOC. So, and this may not be directly related to divorce, um, but it can be to the extent of having cash available. There are some people who refuse uh, to buy a house outright. And then there are others who adamantly refuse to uh, have a mortgage. Um, so can you just speak to that? And I think the more I think about it, it actually really does impact um, someone who is going through a divorce because, you know, if they're not putting all their money into the home, and they have that to invest in other areas, especially with rates being. Of course. And especially you could buy a second home with 10% down. I mean, that's like financing is amazing. But I do deal with the total two different ends of the spectrum on a daily basis um, <clears throat> in regards to people who want to finance 100% of the house and people who don't believe in financing or are upset when they have to finance. Um, I think it's interesting too, because you find that with different people's professions. Um, they have a different opinion about financing. Sometimes commission-only people, I mean, think about it. They love the idea of a HELOC, right? They don't have to make big payments, but when they get those big checks every month, they're they're able to throw huge chunks of change at that HELOC and get it done within a few right. years. So it depends. And then, you know, you have your salary person, <clears throat> sorry, who makes the same thing every two weeks. 
and it doesn't have the capability to do that. So, you know, that's a little bit more tough for someone. And I think that goes to commission only and W2 people, same thing for financing. Some In most cases, actually, I find that the commission people are happy to finance as much as they can because whenever they can, they make a prepayment. There's no prepayment penalties in New York on a regular qualified mortgage. So I think it's just people, different people's ideologies. And I, a lot of it is how people were brought up, I find. They'll tell me, like, my parents never financed anything, so I don't believe in financing things. Right. Um, yeah, that's so true. So what's the biggest nightmare case you've ever had? Um, yours. <laughs> you, have to, you have to explain. Uh, we've had a few. Um, cl- I've sent a few uh, clients to Lauren to get uh, mortgages uh, incident to a divorce. And there, let's just say there's been some interesting um, uh, facts that have happened down the road. And the most recent one, um, there was just other, a lot of family members got into the kitchen on that one. Yeah. And you know what it is? When there's a lot of opinions and a lot of things going on, it just makes it even harder. Um, just because not everyone can get on the same page at all times. But I actually just had a co-op, too. Um, that wasn't yours. That was really difficult. And, and the one that we're referring to didn't? Yeah. The, even though you were only your client was one, but the uh, spouse was calling you on a regular basis. Yeah, it was good times. You don't normally deal with that. No, sometimes I feel like I am the divorce attorney. <laughs> I don't know. I don't normally. What am I saying? I do normally deal with it. I deal with it all. It's a crazy profession. Like I deal with people who aren't even on the mortgage calling me. I deal with. I just had a woman who was financing um, the home. And all of a sudden I get a phone call from her dad. Like, I, I'm like, I don't even know who you are, but you want right. all the details on this loan. You know, it's just very interesting. And, the, you know, the woman's in her 50s. Like, she's not young. Right. So it's just very, it's interesting. We deal with it all. Um, and the different personalities is kind of the hardest thing, especially in heated moments like divorce, because everyone, you know, we say like the mortgage process in general is very stressful. You're dealing with people's money and people's emotions. And those are like the two hardest things to deal with, with people. And divorce is the same exact thing. You're dealing with people's money and people's emotions. And I think anything that you're dealing with those two things, I mean, say a prayer. Well, and it's funny because, you know, we talk about like, I guess if the deal falls through or if they don't get approved on your end, you lose the deal. And on my end, if I get the call and they're not approved, then the deal I just spent, four months negotiating has now fallen through. And now I may have to start a trial or figure out other creative ways, how to get them, um, you know, approved, or maybe they're just selling the house. And I think going back to your point, the more they can kind of figure this out early on, we can avoid all of, you know, that shit show. For sure. But people have this aversion to coming to meet with someone early. I don't know what it is. And I maybe it's a bad state. Like we have a bad stigma, like the profession in general. I'm not sure what it is. And I try to talk to people all the time about why they hesitated coming. Um, You know, most of the time when I talk to people and I'm like, why didn't you come in earlier? Like we could have addressed so many of these things if you didn't wait until last minute. They'll say things like, well, I was afraid of having my credit ran. I knew it was bad. I tried to fix it by myself. Mm. That to me, like, I wish I could educate everyone You're in the world. not judging people by their credit score? No, you know, but like, I, I wish I could tell people like, no, let me fix it. Don't try to do this by yourself. Sure. You just wasted $10,000 doing something that didn't even help it. You know, things like that. Um, or they'll say to me, 
you know, I had no idea this would take so long or whatever. You know, like people just don't understand. So if I could get the message out to everyone as best as possible, it's like, just come in and it's a free consult. Like you don't have to use the person you meet with first. Just try to find a reputable person. I'm available all the time for consults. They're completely free. Like, you know, you don't have to buy a house. Yeah. You just, you know, it's good to know where you stand. Yeah. And you, I, you really, you bust your ass. I know you're always working. Uh, I appreciate the, time that you put in because I, I I get it and I do the same. Thanks. Um we love it there though, honestly. That's Me, great. my mom, my sister, it's like a, we made it like a home. So how do you like working with your mom and your sister? That's like a whole other podcast. <laughs> it is a whole other podcast, but I love it. And I didn't think I was going to. You know, like we don't live in the same house, so that helps. But I thought it was going to be really tough. Me and my mom have really similar personalities. We Butted, like, we butt heads on certain things, but I made sure that when I got in the industry, she wasn't my boss. That's what I made sure. So she could never tell me, like, you need to be doing more of this. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I'm I made really sure jealous. I was That's more great. of her peer. So we get along fantastic. She's my mentor and she's awesome. And my sister's our opener right now. She's also licensed and it's just incredible. There's no one that's going to work harder for you than people who are actually invested in like, you know, sure. your interests. So. I'm very envious. I My dad was a matrimonial lawyer and okay. it's, the short version is, you know, I thought I hated being a matrimonial lawyer and then I left and I just realized I hated working with my dad. And now, you know, I'd give my left leg to be able to practice law with him. So I know. I'm very I jealous. Know. It's a great uh, setup. Yeah. Well, I promise I'm grateful for it. So I, I do, awesome. I, I do uh, thank God every day for that because honestly, I want to say if I didn't do it with them, it wouldn't be nearly as great. So I get it. Yeah. Um, so for somebody out there, like typically, just what is the process once they apply and assuming all the ducks are in a row, yeah. um, from start to finish, what do they, what can they expect the timing be? So now or like how it used to be? <laughs> so usually, and then <laughs> the craziness right now. So Typically, we always say you come in, you get pre-approved or we figure out your, you know, your situation or buyout. Um, we get you into opening. And from opening, you're looking at a 30 to 45 day close. But typically that's, we say. That's great. Um, typically, I close before that, but I don't like to overpromise and underdeliver. So that's what that's what the spiel is. Um, now, forget it. It's not even close to 30 to 45 days. I don't even try to sugarcoat it or lie. I don't lie about anything. So I'd rather address it head on in the beginning and tell you exactly how it's going to be and just set the expectations as realistic as possible. And then at the end, you don't hate me because awesome. I told you the truth from the beginning. Yeah. Um, a few lenders right now aren't approaching it that way. And it's mean to do to people because no matter where you go for a mortgage right now, I don't, won't say in all the world, but I will say in New York for sure, you're not closing in less than 60 days. Like it's just insane. Um, so you're saying there are, there are brokers out there who are lying just to get the business. Yeah, in? of course. It's really sad, actually. Is, is there anything that individuals can do or they, they know like how to weed the broker out? The good from I the think, bad? so my biggest advice on anything in the entire world is go look at reviews. I mean, I think reviews speak to anything. That might be my generation. Like, I won't even go to a restaurant unless I look at the reviews. But I do feel like if you review me and my mom and my sister at the bank and you review even another loan officer at our bank, our reviews will, you know, stand apart from the rest. And where can they find these reviews? Yeah, so you could just Google my name. They'll come up everywhere. 
Um, and I think that that's the most important for anyone. So like if anyone's listening, anyone owns a business, get your reviews up because me saying how awesome I am, there's nothing like every it's self-serving. So I think the key is to have all the people who really think you're awesome and all the people you literally changed their lives and made for the better, write something that sounds real. And when, when I tell people to please write a review, you know, I'll ask them, please write a review. And I say, please remember how your appraisal came in short and there was a lien on the property and all these terrible things happened, but I figured them out and we closed and everything was fine. Write about those bad things because those bad things or those problems come up in every file. And that's, yeah, that's great. I, as a matrimonial lawyer, you know, us matrimonial lawyers, we say like the internet is for crazy people. <laughs> you know, we find a lot of fodder out there for, you know, when we're, uh, listen, I Google everybody. I Google a potential client. I Google the other side. I use it, you know, on cross-examination. And, stuff, yeah, I'm and sure. so, and there's a lot of reviews out there for, you know, whether it's a judge or a lawyer, because my job is not to make friends with people, you know? Um, so it's interesting to see, to hear a different aspect of a review online. Yeah. I mean, I use social for everything. I, my whole life. That's another topic. Like yeah. in my world, I shut down social, you know, and, but social, like you're a social rock star. I love social. And how, like what prompted you to do what you do on, like, I think you should just maybe talk briefly about how you have integrated your brand online and how it has impacted you, if you, yeah. if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, well, really, it all started when I first became a loan officer and I got my license and I was like, now what? Like, where am I finding to do business with me? <laughs> like, sure. How does this even start? And I, I refused to make cold calls. I just, it wasn't for me. I don't like them. I don't want to talk to strangers. I I don't know. I just didn't like it. I don't like when people cold call me. So that wasn't going to be like the cornerstone of my business model. And then I said, you know what? Let's just start with the people I know. I'll just start with my high school friends. I'll start with my, we called it the Christmas card list, uh, family and friends that were getting my Christmas cards. And I started there and I said, let me just start with an Instagram account and a Facebook account. I mean, since then it's grew exponentially. I have a blog. Um, which is livewithlala.com. I have, you know, a great database that sends out weekly emails. I mean, it's grown. I have a YouTube channel, you know, beautiful things. But it all started because I didn't know how to grow my business. And then once you start doing it. Sure. And the deals start coming in of people you actually want to work with. Like, you know, you're picking up the phone and you're like, wow, like, I actually like this person. We have a great, like, rapport before. It's enjoyable. We have great conversation. And now I'm helping them buy a house. I sure. mean, there's nothing better than that. And I feel like everybody out here on Long Island knows you. <laughs> you know, and I, I hope every so. <laughs> person I told I was having you on here, everybody knew who you are. So that's really effective. It's amazing. It's testament to you. Um, are there any mistakes that you see or drawbacks having the social presence that you do? Um, I'm, yeah, there's a few things. So one is you have to have a tough skin. I mean, that's like the big, I think that's the biggest thing is like, you really can't care what people think about you. I mean, it's just what it is. And if you do really, if you're sensitive about that and you really want to be liked by everybody, then this probably isn't for you. Um, you have to be really okay with being like, you know what? I want to be liked by my people. Like I'm going to be who I am and the people who are out there that appreciate that 
will gravitate toward like gravitate towards me and I'll be around those people and everyone else could just go sit out, you know? But if you're not okay That's with like that. That's like great divorce advice to begin with right there. <laughs> Forget social media. So yeah, but if you're not okay with that, it's tough. Like I posted a video uh, the other day and it has thousands of views. But of course, like you get a few people that are just like so negative or so mean and you have to just be like, you know what? There was tons of great comments on that and I got tons of phone calls from that video and I can't concentrate on like the one person scrolling and trolling people. Do you don't reply? No, I mean, no, I do. I'm, I'm crazy. No, I think it's it's easy to like. I'm not hard- ever unprofessional or anything right. like that, but I'll be like, hi, I'm Lauren. I'm a real person behind this video. And like what you said really wasn't cool or something, you know, like. Do they back down? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't be mean to someone who's being nice back. Right. <laughs> Doesn't. That's really funny. Yeah. So I think it takes, it's a learning curve. Shaw is always getting like comments about her hair, you know, and she's not really out there for her hair, but it's just easy for people to target that. Yeah. But does Shaw want to be doing business or be friends with people who don't love her hair? Like, no, like, um, that's how I feel. If they have four cars, I'm sure she would probably. No, it, so. no, because there'll be, there'll be people who love her hair who have six cars. That's true. And I really, I do feel that way. Like, I don't want to hide who I am or pretend to be something else on social. Like I, if you go on my social, I am who I am. There's no way escaping it. Um, the nickname, everyone tells me I'm a lot. Like, that's like the thing they say, like, Oh, she's a lot. But that's, that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. It's who I am. Sure. So I just feel like it's better to embrace that and do more business with people like you. Awesome. So there's another subject I would just want to talk about and maybe it's a little personal. So I know that you are planning a, uh, a wedding. We uh, are. And, but you're not engaged. No. You want to like explain the thought process behind that? Yeah. So I've been with my boyfriend for, I think we're going on seven years now. Love him to death. We've been living together for a while. And we always knew that we wanted to get, you know, we always knew we wanted to get married in 2021. We've been talking about it for years. Now, does he know about, like, all these plannings? Oh, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah. We knew, this was, like, the plan we had. He was chasing a dream. I was chasing a dream. We didn't want to get married or, like, start having kids until the dreams were at least established a little bit. Um, and my thing was income. I wanted to have a sufficient amount of income or savings before we started doing things like that. And I wanted to pay for my own wedding. That was like what I wanted. So I had no opinions. So we had these plans. We were talking about them with someone recently. And they said to us, oh, you're never going to be able to get married in 2021. Everything's already booked. Everyone canceled 2020 weddings. That's so crazy. So 2021. And you're you're out of luck. So we looked at each other and we're like, oh, my God, they might be right. So we called a few places. Lo and behold, they were right. (laughs) There was like one Saturday. At all these places, if a Saturday at all, um, we went to four or five ven- venues and we looked at each other and we're like, the ring's not even made yet. Like, we are not even engaged, but like, we have to do this because if we want to get married next year, this is it. Do or die. So, yeah, I feel terrible for him, though, because like the thing, especially in Italian families, is like you go ex the dad for permission to marry their daughter. And it's like this whole thing. And he knew that that had to be done. But at the same time. We had went to go pick out a venue and he didn't say a word to my dad. So I'm like, my dad, everyone knew we were getting married. So this isn't like a big shocker. But I remember, you know, he came over for his birthday dinner and I see like my dad and him talking outside. But we already paid, like we put the deposit down for the venue and I see them chit-chatting outside and I'm like, oh, it's going down. Like, I know he's asking right now. 
But the conversation actually wound up being hilarious and beautiful because my dad, who I have the most wonderful relationship with, you know, he said, to, I'm really sorry that it went down like this. I'm sorry that we booked the venue without me talking to you first, but I just want to make sure, you know, I asked for your permission to marry Lauren, whatever. And my dad said something nice. I don't know what he said, but something normal. And then he said, you know, Ro, I have to tell you what Lisa's dad said to me when I asked to marry her. And I had never heard this story. And I was so close with my grandfather and he, he's passed away. So the fact that this story never made it to me before now was really interesting. But That's crazy. apparently my dad asked my grandfather, you know, I, you know, can I have your permission to marry Lisa? And he said, and he cursed. So I don't know if we're cursing on this, but he was like, Joe, what the fuck are you asking me for? Did you ask Lisa? She's the one that has to say yes. That's amazing. So dad turned around and said to Ro, like, what the fuck are you asking me for? Did you That's ask Lauren? Awesome. So it was just like a beautiful, it was perfect because I knew like Roland was upset that he had an ax first before the venue was chosen. And um, the conversation wound up going great regardless. And it was a beautiful story that I feel like Ro could pass down to our kids one day. But um, we're really excited. The ring's getting made. So now, <laughs> so now does the venue, is there like a COVID or pandemic contract? There provision? is. And I'm really hoping it's gone by then because if COVID's not gone by then, we have bigger problems in my wedding. But um, yes, you pay 50% of the wedding. You don't have to give me details. No, I'll I would tell just, you. I, I, would I want that, people to know. That's good. You pay 50% of the wedding up until, you know, the right before. And if COVID, something happens and like, let's say you can only have 50 people, no dancing. And I decide I don't want that. I'll get a, a refund of 70%. Okay. I thought that was fair. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they'll be in business, though, if this goes on a whole nother year. Well, everybody's getting married in, like, backyards. I'm, uh, you know, I'm joking. People get married in the backyard, and then they get divorced in the living room. <laughs> so. Well, my parents, we all wanted to get married in my parents' backyard. My parents live on the bay in West Islip. It's, like, breathtaking, nice. beautiful. But the problem is, it's, like, sometimes it's a wind tunnel. So it's, sure. like, it's a little nerve-wracking. All right. Well, I'm we sure you guys that. will figure it out and then. <laughs> maybe there's a prenup in, in store or something. I know. It's, you know, we were just, it's so funny. We were talking about prenups. Those like, I feel like no one talks about those. Uh, well, in my well, world, they talk well, about you, them a lot. But I think yeah. No, like regular people who aren't in this for a living. I think that's a big problem, you know, and that it's gotten a lot easier. It's an, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but I think there is certainly, and I'm not saying this because of my profession, you know, um, it, it doesn't need to be taboo. There's a, a wedding, a, a marriage is really just a business contract in its simplest forms. Okay. There's a lot of romance. You you can keep the romance in a marriage and still have a prenup, you know, I and I, and I think by embracing the concept, your marriage and a relationship is going to be exponentially better, you know, and this is a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and there, I don't just as a divorce lawyer, I don't believe that every relationship should have a prenup, but I think if the relationship is healthy and it has a good, you know, framework, it doesn't matter what the prenup says or doesn't say. Um, so I think you should do a whole podcast on that because I think a pro it's just like with anything else, people are afraid of them because they don't know enough about them. Perfect. So we'll have yeah. you and Ro will come in and we'll Deal. talk about uh, prenups. Yeah. Or people awesome. always think too, people always think prenups are for people who are like extremely wealthy. They it, don't realize there's like, so many other myths. stuff too. Exactly. Yeah. 
Same thing with life insurance. A whole nother topic, but such a taboo topic as well. Well, listen, I'm so grateful for you coming here. Thanks for having um, me. Uh, is there anything else you want to share before we wrap this up? I don't think so. I'm just so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're doing this. I feel like you'll be able to definitely help people, like at least have a tool to, you know, educate themselves on certain areas. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. You'll have to come back. <laughs> Love that. Thank you.